You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Ron Rash, the author of the 2009 Penn Faulkner finalist and New York Times bestselling novel Serena, in addition to four other prize-winning novels, including Nothing Gold Can Stay, One Foot in Eden, Saints at the River, and The World Made Straight. Ooh, ooh, I'm going to interrupt you. That's not right. Oh, thank you. It matters. No, it matters. Please go right ahead. Yeah, uh, it would be... I've actually, it would be uh, nothing gold can stay is a collection of short stories. I, I think you could just end up with this saying the novels. Actually, there are, let me think, I think there are five. Let me give them to you. Please do. One Foot in Eden, Saints at the River, The World Made Straight, Mitch and Serena, The Cove. All right. Now yeah, I'm, so those are the novels. I don't think we have to worry about the other stuff. Well, I'm going to, I think we should mention that you're also the author of four collection of poems and five collections of stories, and that you've twice been the recipient of the O. Henry Prize, and that you yeah. teach at Western Carolina University. And you're joining me on the phone today from, where are you? Did you say you're in Clemson? I am Clemson, South Carolina. You're in South Carolina today, and you're here to talk about your new novel, Above the Waterfall, on sale September 15th from Echo. So thank you so very much for joining us. Good to talk to you. Now, the setting of your novels is always so distinct. So I thought before I asked you to tell us a little bit about Above the Waterfall, I would ask you to tell us a few details about where you are right now. Where, where are you and what are you looking at? Well, I'm actually looking out at the woods behind one of our houses. We have two houses, one in Cullowee, North Carolina, in the mountains, and one in Clemson, South Carolina, just in the foothills of the mountains. And so it's a beautiful day, and I just there's a creek nearby, and so it's a very pleasant view as we're talking. And I've read that you're interested in how landscape affects character and their psychology does where you sit to write uh, affect you greatly in, in terms of your work i i think it, it does affect my work but i live so long and, and live my essentially my whole life uh, in, in in the um, uh, western carolinas in the uh, mountains and foothills that it's a landscape that's inside me as much as outside now, have you ever been tempted to live anywhere else but North Carolina? New Zealand. I went there on book tour a few years ago, and that was a beautiful place, in part because it reminded me of the landscape I'm so comfortable with. But I feel that I need, I do need to stay in this landscape. It's, it's interesting. Some writers, particularly Southern writers, feel they have to leave the South to write. Uh, writers such as Truman Capote. Thomas Wolfe, uh, Tennessee Williams, but other writers such as Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner, 
Laura Welty uh, needed to stay at home, not one of the latter. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, can you please um, can you please describe above the waterfall a little bit for us? Tell us what the book is, is sort of the premise and what and what you feel it's about. Well, I, I hope that the reader senses it, it's it's a book about two people who have gone through very traumatic moments in their lives and are both trying to find a way to survive, uh, knowing that and, and trying to to. Uh, in a sense, make their way through life and, and, and the world. And the one is a park ranger named Becky, and she has survived a school shooting when she was 12 years old, so actually uh, has seen her teacher killed. Uh, Les, the sheriff, has, in a sense, almost caused the death of the woman that he was married to. And so both people are trying to find ways to survive. Les, by, in a sense, trying to look at the worst of the world, finding some consolation and just seeing the world as a terrible, uh, evil place, dark place. Nikki, though, has to find beauty in the world, and and they both follow the path, but when they begin to have a relationship, uh, we start to, I think, uh, help heal each other. Now, I've also read that... For each of your novels, it, it, it usually, it commonly begins with an, with an image that you have. What was the image that you had for Above the Waterfall? Uh, the novel actually began with an image of a, a trout stream, uh, the fish being poisoned, and, and I, uh, that image of, of the dead fish, knowing what had happened to them, was the, uh, you know, the most important part of the book, and uh, as far as getting it started, though, I would say at the same time that that may seem like a very sort of start, but I feel like this is the most hopeful book I've ever written. Yeah, it, it's one of those books where when it, it reminds you of sort of the complexity of life and, and all those gray areas, and it's one of those books where when you finish it, you want to go back and start it over again. And in that first passage, you have less sort of saying, where where does this story start? You, you know, and I think that that's, that's an interesting aspect, where where does the story, and you would think it's with the, the river getting polluted, but it's it, it goes further back, doesn't it? It does, and I, and I think that sometimes uh, can be an interesting premise, uh, you know, where does the story start, and also where does it end? And, uh, but, I, but I do like the idea of the reader being able, wanting to go back, and also uh, going back. I think the test of a, of, of a really good book is that the second time uh, uh, we read it, we feel like it's even better. And I'm not saying that's necessarily true of Above the Waterfall. I hope it is, but, but I do think that it is a story that once you finish, you start to see parts of the book that perhaps did not seem as important much more important. Yes, I, I, th- I think that it does exactly that. And I love the way that you have Les describe his relationship with Becky as being accomplices. That That's sort of where he finally lands, and it's it's hard for him to, to arrive at that, but he, he figures out that that's exactly what it means, and that seems like the the ideal relationship, in my opinion. Well, I, I think they, they, they recognize that immediately in each other, and uh, even though both are cautious because of what's happened in past relationships, but but I do 
find that uh, there's that instinctive bond that they have from the very beginning, and and in part because they're both people who are have have either become or by their na- very nature are outsiders. And I think that recognition is what uh, draws them together. Uh, as Les says, I won't say where he says this, but he also mentions that they are alone together. Mm-hmm. Now, can you please give me your thoughts on, on violence to reveal character? Because I've read that you you think about that and that you use that. Now that's, that's a very important point for me because I, what I do not want to do and I, I would fail as a writer if I did this. It, it, I don't want just to titillate. Uh, I just don't want to, in a sense, draw on our more western instincts to you know to glorify violence. But what I do hope that the books the books do when 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 violence occurs is that it's a way of getting to the essence of a character uh, because that's not that's true in fiction. Uh, in dramatic moments where a character reveals, it's also true in life. Mm-hmm. It's in those moments, sometimes of life and death, sometimes when something uh, very serious has occurred, that people truly reveal themselves. Uh, sometimes in, in, in negative ways, but sometimes in positive ways as well. So, in a sense, I, I, I put my characters very often in those situations, but it's more to get to the essence of who they are. Yeah. Yeah, and you certainly do. I've also read that what you're most proud of in your career is perseverance, you know, to sort of stick with it uh, throughout those early days when you you were first uh, starting out. What was it that sustained your confidence during, during those early years? Uh, that, in some ways, is kind of a mystery to me as well. I, I think uh, I certainly didn't get much encouragement and, and didn't deserve much because I wasn't writing very well. I didn't really feel like I wrote anything remotely worthwhile until I was about 28. And, and, and finally, and, and I, even after that, it took me, I was almost 50 years old when I published my first novel uh, and 40 when I published my first book. But I, I think part of it was just that I made a decision in my late 20s that I would rather attempt to be a, become a writer and fail than not to know. And I knew to truly know one way or the other I was going to have to commit myself for a long, long time. And, and, and I did. And, and, and I continued to work and uh, gradually got better. Uh, made small movements uh, where I started to recognize it. I am improving, but it was a very slow, deliberate process, but I I felt like I I didn't have a choice. Once I committed to it, I had to, in a sense, live my life attempting to do it. Now, you teach writing. Do you think you can teach that type of perseverance or not? I don't think you can teach it. I think uh, what uh, uh, I can do is to remind students of that because I think very often they tend to get discouraged if they're not writing as well as they'd like or they're not getting published and I think I can certainly point myself and say well I was 40 years old before I published my first book and this is part of what you have to do Uh, you have to put in the hours and you you shouldn't want to publish right away because I think almost all writers have to 
put in the time, uh, a number of hours. Malcolm Gladwell talked about this. I think what is the 5,000 hour rule. Yeah, I think maybe. it's 10,000. I think it's that Yeah, long. maybe yeah, it's yeah. 10,000. It well, is. it was even more for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, you actually have to – I mean, but it's – why is that unusual to be a really – good basketball player yeah. you do the same uh to be a really good musician so why should writing be different? yeah and now when you publish your first work it was poetry is that right that's right and so tell us about that and 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 how you made the the transition to writing both poetry and fiction yeah. well when I, I first started writing in my late 20s uh, mid to late 20s i uh well i wrote a little bit in college it was, it was either short stories or, or poetry, and then as I got into my early 30s, uh, I pretty much spent about five or six years writing only poetry, and I believe that was probably one of the best things I could have done. Well, I know it is one of the best things I could have done for my fiction, because it really taught me how to be as concise as possible, uh, to, to try to find the most vivid similes, the most vivid language possible, but even more important, uh, the rhythms uh, within that, that can be used in, in poetry and prose both, and the very, very small nuances of, of using sound and playing off sounds in sentences and within, within sentences and line lengths, mm-hmm. and, and all of those things the reader may not notice, but... Uh, when a reader feels like the work is really smooth, that means the writer is, uh, is is making those kinds of decisions. Yeah. So now, tell us about your your writing habits. You, you know, do you do you start first thing in the morning? Do you have a special place? Just give us a picture of 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 your typical day of writing. Yeah, I, I'm very ritualistic about it. I think that's an important uh, aspect for for serious writers to make it into a particular time of day, or at least I find that true in my case. And what I like to do is uh, early morning, uh, I work it out usually about an hour physically, work out, and come back. I've got a little, you know, uh, some of the, uh, a little energy in that. I'm ready to write. I've got a huge cup of uh, iced tea, and, uh, and I... Is it sweet tea? It's usually sweet tea, and this is <laughs> one of the most shameful acts of the southern. I now drink unsweetened tea because yeah. I'm worried about my health. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I, I get all those things done, and, and then I really sit down and, and, and write. And usually I try to get in about, it depends, but I can usually get in four hours at least, and, and, and days when it's going well, sometimes at the 10. Yeah, and w- so where, describe the um, room in which you write. Well, uh, I, I live uh, in, in very beautiful rural places. Uh, Cullowee, uh, my home in Cullowee is, is, is in, you know, in, in, in woodlands, essentially uh, on, on ridge, and, and uh, very, pretty isolated, but uh, I, I find that Sometimes uh, a beautiful landscape is a distraction. So I tend to do my work in, in rooms where I can't e- don't even have a view. Uh, oh my goodness! It's almost like going into uh, you know a uh, uh, prison cell. You kind of lock yourself in, and 
and, and right, but but I find very often that's the, that's the way that, that's best for me. Who are your first readers? My brother's my first reader. He tends to be uh, very good at understanding not only what's on the page, but what I'm attempting to do. I think he, he knows me so well, and that's a, a real advantage. And also, being a brother, he's ruthless. Uh, yeah. He doesn't have to be nice to me, so he's very, very uh, critical uh, in the best sort of way. I mean, he, he does not let me get lazy. He will, will point out those places where uh, the language is starting to sag and not do what it should. And, and that's just, his tendency is more on the, the very specific word choices, maybe sentence rhythms, the kinds of things I actually enjoy the most. Now, what what's his profession? He works at a, a technical college, and he works in a program for students with disabilities. Yeah. It's so often um, that first readers are, are family members, and I think it's because of what you said. You trust them, and you know they won't hold back. <laughs> they're going right. to yeah. let it rip, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, so now, what what do you enjoy reading? And, and tell us about your reading habits when you're writing and when you're not writing. And, and I'm always curious whether folks read to support what they're writing or if they read something sort of diametrically opposite. I tend to read at night after I finish my day's writing. And I, I, I do read a lot. I actually read when I'm uh, working out. I get on a... Uh, a machine and electrical machine and the book in front of it. I get a good bit of reading done then. But uh, I find that there are certain writers I need to stay away from because their style is so powerful. Uh, writers such as Faulkner, I have to be careful about uh, reading too much of him when I'm working because I start to see his influence uh, or his, his, his style uh, creeping in a bit too much. But I love to read writers uh, from outside the United States. I primarily... Uh, I think well, most of my reading now is. I, I, I enjoy the writer uh, Peterson from Norway. He's a wonderful writer. Uh, Lu Yan from China. Um, my writer I continue to go back to is Dostoevsky and John Junzo, uh, the much underrated, I think, French novelist. And one thing I like about all, all of those writers is... Uh, that they, they write about rural landscapes, and I find a real connection there uh, in the way that they, they describe rural life. I also asked folks about their their experience being published. So you published your first work at at 40, and that was however many years ago. And, and what is it, what has changed the most, in your opinion, in terms of the process of being published, and what is still gratifying, and, and sort of what has changed enough to be somewhat uh, challenging or frustrating? Uh, well, I think there are many more opportunities. I think uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, com- the computer, the technology has, has allowed more books to be published, uh, self-published books. Uh, and there's a literary history of that. Stephen Crane did it, uh, Walt Whitman. Uh, and so I think that's a positive development. I do think that, unfortunately, at times, the kind of mid-list writer, not blockbusters, but, but books that uh, get some attention and, and steady sales, that model I don't think is 
used quite as much as it used to be, and I think that's a shame because I think that kind of long-term investment in a writer such as a Faulkner who did not sell well early on um, is one of the, you know, the great things that uh, publishers have been able to do. Fortunately, I've got a publisher at Echo that that's the kind of book they want to print, and, and I feel very fortunate. Yeah, you, you're, you're well supported by that team, aren't you? That's good. Now, how much how much involvement do you have in things like your book covers and and your descriptions and that that sort of thing? I tend to step back from that unless I feel like something is just really not working. And uh, so I have had input on, on actually the last two covers, which I appreciate uh, being considered. Uh, and and I think I've made a couple of suggestions that probably made better covers possible. So. But that is important. I mean, uh, obviously, as a writer, I tend to put in three years for every novel, and, and you want the book, once it's out there, to, to be as attractive as possible, but also to give a sense of, the, of the, the story behind it. My final question, and it's a little bit corny, but I, I insist on asking it of everyone. Were you to be banished to a desert island and you could take only three books, which would you take? Well, the first would be uh, The Plays of Shakespeare. That would be a big book, and that would certainly be one of my choices. Moby Dick would be probably my second choice, and my third choice would probably be The Poetry of John Keats. Those are good. Those are very good choices. They're going to keep you keep you occupied and, and encouraged. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, Ron Rash, thank you so much for Above the Waterfall. I enjoyed it tremendously. And thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. I enjoyed it very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.